This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. Prepare to get caffeinated. Brian, welcome to the show, man. Awesome to be here. Yeah. So this is an interesting thing. Between the two of us, we've known each other for 20 plus years. We actually went to, was it, did you go to Sacagawea or did you go to? The other. The other. Yeah, yeah. 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 So we went to high school. bitter rivals. (laughs) We we went to high school together, believe it or not, folks. This is the first time I think I've had anybody on the show that I went to high school with. Yeah, awesome. Congratulations. Well, thanks. Feel like a big deal now. Oh. uh, So- Brian has an incredible background. Uh, well, one, we were friends in high school. I, I like to make sure that people know that because uh, Brian was smart and I was not. So I did have not some true. smart friends. You were much cooler. And <laughs> I think you may have had sex with my sister. Yes. <laughs> that Kinda is weird. absolutely not true. Your sister- Should I mention that? I'm not sure if your, your sister would edit that out. I don't think so. I think oh. she's, she probably wouldn't even tell me the time. If I walked by the hall, it, it, she would have been like, who are you? Are you the one that stole her underwear, by the way? She's, she she was missing a pair of senior year. Mm, definitely not, oh, because dear. I would have remembered Does your that. wife listen to this show? Yeah, yeah, she, she okay, does. Okay, we'll stop. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah, let's move on. So, uh, Brian and I have known each other for a long time. Uh, you went off, you became, can I say it? Yes. Yeah, you became a spy or a case officer yeah, true. Uh, for the Central Intelligence Agency. He and I both worked at the same organization around the same time, and we didn't know it. So how fucking interesting is that? Because I was spending a lot of time uh, in and out of Washington, D.C. I was also in Iraq and Afghanistan for the majority of that time. Brian was right in the Washington, D.C. area. We were probably walking down some of the same sidewalks, maybe even going in some of the same doors without even knowing each other. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was fucking crazy. You know, you, you you don't realize how small the world is until you're you're uh, around, particularly in our community, within the mm-hmm. military community, intelligence community. It's a very very small world. Um, but I will say, our hometown, twenty five thousand people in the middle yeah. of Idaho, uh, to to think that one of your classmates is running around in Langley is is pretty weird. Yeah. It's so weird. I. And once I found out, I actually found out because I was watching the news. I think is that right? Yeah, that's how I found out because. Wow. I, I knew that, or I thought you worked for the State Department. Okay. And then wink, something wink. came up. And I was yeah. like, this fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I think I hit you, I, I think I hit you up on Twitter or one of those. I was like, dude, are yeah. you serious? Yeah. Like, and uh, so we had kind of a, a back and forth, like, hey, no shit, you know? So kind of a small world getting yeah. smaller because. Uh, you know, Lewiston, Idaho is such a small town. Right. Pretty much everybody knows each other. Right. And then like- Some of your f- friends sleep with your sister. Yeah, for instance. yeah man. I'll so, tell you, if I was lucky enough, like, boy- you, Anyway, sorry, yeah, moving on. Sorry. I'm still there. Uh, so, and then we went into another very small organization where there's only, you know, a few couple tens of thousands of people over there. Yeah. Um, we had no idea. But the thing that I- wanted to bring you on the show and talk about was not necessarily like reliving our high school dreams because or our high school memories because that would be really fucking boring. Everyone would love that show. They would love that. Wow. (laughs) I remember, I will have, I do have one uh, one memory, one very distinct memory. We were at a football game and uh, here we go. Brian and I were 
we we were you were a Republican in high school, I believe. I, I was I. Yeah. Okay. You were. I okay. think so because you and I were both talking about politics on the sidelines of a of a of a high school football game, and we were talking fucking nonstop about okay. politics right. and. Uh, and I don't know why that stuck in my my head for whatever reason, but I just remember that, and I've remembered that for huh. twenty plus years. And oh, the interesting yeah. thing is, is you're still talking about fucking politics, <laughs> and so am I. <laughs> I. I am, and from a less authoritative yeah. figure, I am like uh, not. A, I like to call myself a, uh, a political idiot, like. Um, but it is. But you're a successful idiot, and we're all very <laughs> proud of you from Idaho. Well done, sir. <gasps> well done. Um, so. You, so why are we talking about politics? Do you remember uh, Mr. Trigstead? Of course, right? yeah. So obviously for the many people, everyone who doesn't yeah, know everybody him, that knows him. So he was our, our history teacher, civics teacher. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I will never forget, and I think actually is very appropriate for this conversation, is he reminded us of what, two things, what Benjamin Franklin said to the woman who approached him as they were figuring out what government we should have. Uh, and his answer to her when she said, well, what is it? He said, it's a republic if you can keep it. And Trigger was always harping on us to say that that means you have an obligation to understand politics, to be involved in politics, local, state, whatever it is, be right. involved in your government because it's yours. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you don't tend to, to your government, you'll lose it. And that's, those are profound things for a high school teacher to have actually... Yeah. Uh, he was a good man. Yeah, he was a good man. Like there were a lot of really good teachers. The great thing is, is I didn't go to class much, so I didn't get an opportunity to interface with them. Um, Well, and you've turned out to be a mess. (laughs) A complete mess. Dear Lord. Um, I think your journey uh, is pretty incredible because you left Lewiston, uh, you joined the agency right after September 11th. Um, What what was the... um, Do you remember at, at that point in time why... You wanted to do it, or what was what was driving you to do that? Yeah, I think probably similar to, to you in that uh, you know growing up in this in the eighties and the nineties, you loved your country. You understood that it had its its challenges, its deficiencies, but fundamentally, you loved your country and you wanted to make sure it remained the greatest nation on the face of the earth um, and the most exceptional. And so, I think that that was a huge driver for me. I mean, it sounds clicheish and patrioticy, but but it's it's absolutely true. We were baptized in those fires in that time. You know, the other piece is I, I think that the, the agency, much like the military community, it, it taps into your, that desire to just explore the world, mm-hmm. you know, get on a ship, get on a plane and go. Right. Uh, and I think that that for me was really exciting because we're, you know, in Northern Idaho, an incredible place. I love it. Love going back. I know mm-hmm. you do too. Um, but there's a big world. I want to go explore it. So I think those two things, love of country and just a curiosity explore. for the world. Yeah. Well, do you remember, were you in college and did you start researching? Is that, is that what you're doing? Were you like, yep. did you see an ad somewhere? Like I've, I've heard so many different stories yeah. and how they joined and why a person joined. And I'll get into one of my favorites here in nice. a minute, but I want to hear, right. was there something that you saw yeah. or some image that kind of pulled the string on the sweater, so to speak? Uh, you know, I like to drive fast cars and sleep with lots of women. <laughs> and that's like James, James Bond. Bond. Yeah. 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 Is that not how it works? <laughs> I think so. Oh, yeah. dear. No, that's not how it works. It's <laughs> awful. Yeah. We'll get to that in a minute. No, look, um, what was the question? I was focused uh, was on there, fast cars and women. Was, was there right. one thing that you saw that kind of activated that imagination piece? Uh, you know, I think 
at the end of the day, uh, as I started the application process, mm-hmm. um, knowing that the agency had this mission to send people abroad to recruit spies and steal secrets. I mean, that's cool. Yeah. Right? The, the mission Super of itself cool. was cool. Yeah. And the opportunity to do that, to earn money uh, right. doing that job was like just an incredible opportunity for a small town, you know, yeah. guy from, you know, rural Idaho and, and uh, the rest of my family's from Oregon, rural Oregon. What a great opportunity. So I threw my hat, uh, you know, in, in that to ring and for whatever crazy reason, they accepted me. Although, I don't think I've ever told you the story. Um, so I get a call out of the blue one day. And they said, hey, Brian, uh, we know that we had uh, interviewed you previously and we really liked you, but uh, we lost your file. Your application just slipped through the cracks. But we want to restart that process because we really liked you. And uh, would you be interested? Here's a kicker. They had never interviewed me. They confused me with someone else. Sweet. So I'm like, absolutely. I love talking to you guys too. That was, <laughs> God, what a great interview. I, I was so disappointed. I fell short. But let's let's kick it up again. Let's do it. And uh, I I lied my way through good. that part, which means that I was a, a good case officer. Could I, I could I could lie well? Yeah, yeah. So it, your your journey actually started with a lie, with a mistake. Yeah, with yeah. a mistake, I with sh- a bureaucratic I, paperwork yes. mistake, which with is like perfect. every good yeah. government story yes. starts with a good yeah. bureaucratic mistake. That is correct. Right. I um, I'm a fraud. <laughs> so, but by the way, folks, I mean, you can cut that out yeah. and just replay that every time I post something or say something. Oh, look, he said he's a fraud. It's a gif. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll make a gif out of it. Amazing. It'll be good for Twitter. They the, the guys on Twitter will love that. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, so you apply, you get in, you you know you start the work. Did your family have any idea? So what did you Not tell your family? No. So I, I told them I worked for another you know, three-letter organization right. back in D.C. And uh, I, I kept it close hold because, yeah. as you know, you know, when you start working at the agency, it's, it's an incredibly competitive process to yeah. get in. I mean, even though I, I fit my way the very first uh, conversation, <laughs> you know, I obviously had to demonstrate that I was capable and did that. And then once you start, there's no guarantee you'll actually be certified. Right. Once you go through all the training, they put you through a series of tests at the very end, and then either you make it or you don't. And so until I made it through that process, I didn't want my family to know right. um, because I didn't want to come across as a failure, frankly. Right. So I wanted to prove myself I could do it. And then once I got past that hurdle, then, you know, I, I told a couple of folks in my family who promptly told everyone. So oh, that's good. good. Yeah, that is Now good. they all look at their proud, right? I'm sure with yeah. your family, same thing. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, my boy went and did good things. So, uh, yeah, but that created some uh, cover challenges. Yeah, I... I had kind of the same thing. Uh, I didn't want to tell anybody because I was actually, I was more concerned with, um, well, one, people not believing me Mm. because they truly just would be like, yeah, whatever, fucked hard. You know, they'd be like, sure you do, you know. Uh, And then two- You look the part, come on. Yeah, but then two, I was like, uh, I know my dad. My dad talks to everybody. Like he'll stop at the convenience store and he's like, hey, hell- Hey, yeah. my boy works for the CIA. What right. do you think about that? Don't tell anybody. <laughs> hey, and then it's like, well, who's that lady behind you? Well, that's the uh, that's the delivery person. Well, listen, delivery person, my son works for the CIA, right. so don't tell anybody. Yeah. You know, that's the way my dad would actually work. I found out years later that after I told my father, he told a very good friend of his who's Iranian. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic, yeah. Dad. Great work. Yeah. I, I kind of, after a few years, I was like, well... At the end of the day, there are a bunch of people out there telling their family members they work for the CIA and they don't. True. So then it actually does provide legitimate cover for action because if, especially if you're kind of an idiot growing up, people yeah. are like, yeah, yeah. Okay, Ed, <laughs> uh-huh, I know. 
like, yeah, so your son, yeah. and they're like, you're probably, he's probably hitchhiking across the United States. That's yeah. probably what he's no, doing. He has an OnlyFans account. Yeah, That's exactly. what he does now. Yeah, that's what We're he proud. does. He We're takes his clothes off. <laughs> We're proud of him. Yeah. And, uh, but I did, I purposely could not tell him because I knew, I knew this thing would just like catch fire. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I just said that I was in the army because I was in the army. So I just kept on saying that I was in the army for a long period of time. And then, uh, you know, eventually I was like, ah, I don't even care, like whatever. And then half the people didn't believe me either way. So, sure. you know, I was talking to, uh, um, well, a mutual friend of ours. I was talking to Brett Woodland ah. and I was talking to him one day and he was like, so what do you do at the army? And I was like, oh, dude, I work for the CIA. I don't work for the army. Gotcha. And he's like, okay, sure you do, buddy. <laughs> okay. That's super good. You know, don't and you he's love like, to hear that. Like all your friends, like they, their expectation of you was pretty much failure. Pretty much yeah. failure. Yeah. And I even, and you remember uh, Nat, of course, I would yeah. imagine, right? So even Nat was like, okay, yeah, 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 okay. So the good thing was, is that nobody actually felt that I was capable of doing that. Gotcha. So it really didn't matter one way or another. Nice. Uh, I think my dad was probably the only person that was like, I believe Living this. Yeah, nice. because, because yeah. he actually went to like, the special forces qualification course graduation. Yeah. So he actually knew I was a Green Beret. Whereas everybody else was like, uh-huh. Okay, yeah. buddy. Yeah. I thought they were much bigger. I always used to get that. Yeah. Like, aren't Green Berets much taller? Yeah. You know, aren't they like yeah. strong and right? And don't they have like mustaches and big muscles and stuff? Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I mean, a lot of them are way cooler I looking than I am. Big heart. Yeah. I'm I mean, I try. I'm like the <laughs> little engine that could, you know? It's like like the national success story of yeah. just like blatant incompetence and and, and a lack of but physical we're so stature. Proud of you. Yeah, thank you. Welcome. You know, it's like um, it's it's like going to the the the, the special kid and be like, yeah. you know what, you you are special. You, you are. are, and there's there's a place for everybody in this world. There is, you know, and you're gonna end up, uh, you know, scraping Run gum on a off coffee the bottom. Company. Of- <laughs> that is true. What yeah. happened? What happened? I I don't know. I. I do want to get into uh, as we transition. So not fully transitioning. We're just yes. partial transition. Right. Is, uh, I haven't cut everything uh, off. Yeah. <laughs> so y- you spend some time there and you leave, we'll call it what, 2014? Is that right? Uh, and then 15. 15? Yeah. Um, and I think that's when, when was your first news experience and who was that with? Yeah, so what a wild story. Uh, a friend of mine, um, he was actually in the Pentagon, 9-11 attacks, uh, survived it, uh, started doing TV uh, mm-hmm. to, to share his story. And he transitioned out of the army and became the producer, a producer for the legendary Larry King. Right. Um, and so when I finished up uh, that fall of, of 2015, knew I was transitioning out, we were chatting. And he said, man, I don't know if you'd be interested, but we would love to have you sit down with Larry King and talk about national security issues, particularly North Korea um, and uh, I think China and a few others. And of course, I'm like, no, I'm pretty busy. Larry King's kind of small. Yeah, small fry. Of course, I'm going to say yes. Larry King's this legend. He actually, when I sat and chatted with him, he interviewed uh, the the OSS director, Wild Bill Donovan. So for folks who are listening. Yeah. The the founder of the CIA, but actually the founder of OSS. Yeah. Yeah, this, This guy is amazing. So, I learned all these incredible stories sitting down with Larry Kane and uh, uh, I think it was um, some famous celebrity's uh, child came in as we were having supper after he and I did this interview. And what an amazing man and, and what, a, what a loss uh, is he just passed ever so recently. Yeah. But at any rate, so 
That was the first interview, sat down with him. He's busting my chops about you know, North Korea invading the United States. We're having a great time. What a wonderful memory. So that kicked things off. And some other producers at CNN and Fox News both saw that interview. And they're like, hey, that guy is decent in front of the camera. Um, not really smart, uh, <laughs> but we can throw some you know, makeup on him and yeah. give him the words to say. And yeah. He can do it. Uh, no, so, you know, I started writing then for Fox News uh, and uh, San Francisco Chronicle and the LA Times uh, and just started basically sharing my heart about different issues. So at that time, you know, what do we do uh, in terms of engaging our, our friends around the world on uh, sort of radical Islam? And how do we both embrace the fact that most Muslim people are incredibly peaceful and wonderful people with this small subset of folks who are clearly out to kill us and and up in modernity and, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. So we're writing about that, North Korea, some of the stuff that, you know, that they were doing around their ballistic missile program, their fissile nuclear program. How do we get a, a handle of that? Because they're shipping that stuff abroad to places like Iran, to Syria. So these things that I knew about, that I'm very passionate about, I started writing. Uh, and then 2015 turned into 16, and we had a an election, you may remember it. With oh, the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember something yeah, about that. Begley, yeah. Hillary Clinton, yeah. uh, she's a... Former first lady. Mm, I'm not sure. Okay. I'm yeah. just, I, you know, I've heard these of her. Yeah. I'm not smart. Her. So I'll yeah. recap. Yeah. Yeah. So Hillary Clinton, Trump, it was a big deal. So I started writing more about politics. And, and I think that's where, um, you know, my background uh, wasn't really helpful from a CIA perspective, but, you know, I was passionate about the country and the mission, which mm-hmm. uh, everybody listening to this program, no doubt it is as well. Um, and trying to take that lens of country first and, and, how is is that being manifested in our political system or not? And so I started writing a lot about that. And I, I came at it from being a, a Democrat and for, for many, many, many years um, and growing up in the Pacific Northwest in the 80s and the 90s, right. Democrats were very, very different. We, we, it was a relatively moderate to conservative part of the, of the country where Democrats right. were moderate conservative, represent a lot of rural districts, mm-hmm. a lot of conservative rural districts. Um, uh, Tom Foley, Speaker yeah. of the House, you may recall, he was the from the Eastern District of uh, Washington State, Spokane, Walla Walla. Mm-hmm. So we, we grew up in a very different time with a different political party that was the Democratic Party. And so uh, my family was largely all Democrats as well. So I started writing kind of from that background and coming out of that time. And Idaho Cecil Andrus was mm-hmm. a governor, a uh, Democrat. So at any rate. Um, I, it, it has a long heritage of... Uh, Democrats that have actually done some pretty incredible things. I, Frank Church is probably yeah. one of the most well-known. Yep. Uh, he was a senator. That's right. Yeah, he was a senator from Idaho. And, you know, obviously the Frank Church hearings That's had right. a profound impact on the country. Uh, he was in the spotlight for a number of years. Uh, it completely changed the way that I think the, the CIA is run today. Yeah, actually. Amen. Um, and, but I, I completely agree. It's interesting. My, my grandfather was a Democrat. Mm. And uh, he was a logger. He was a Democrat. My my dad is a Republican. I remember those guys going like at it tooth and nail. Yeah. But there's no way my grandfather would be considered a Democrat today. Right. Like there's no way. Right. Like, like if he was still alive, he'd be like, can't, can't identify with that party. Right. right. Well, and that's why I, I left. And mm-hmm. I think that so many people in my family uh, have either become independent or Republicans because right. the Democratic Party values the people that are running the joint uh, are either virulently anti-American, they've embraced ideologies like Marxism, right. which have destroyed every country that's ever tried it, led to tens of millions of deaths. Um, I mean, that, that's not hyperbole. We, that is very clear with the Elon Omars and, yep. and uh, the, the AOCs and all the rest of them. 
they have basically pole position within the Democratic mm-hmm. Party. You don't have any blue dog Democrats, the most more conservative Democrats yeah. anymore. Even if there are a few of them left that they don't even speak up no. against this more radical wing of the party, which tells you all you need to know about the modern left. Mm-hmm. Well, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think that they're embracing Marxism? Do you think it's uh, purely based on uh, power or perceived power? Uh, where do you see uh, the DNC being able to embrace that and take it in the future? Because I, I just don't see it uh, as far as like being a, a long and uh, beneficial history as far as like tying your horse to Marxism. I just don't think it's good. So, I mean, amen. I mean, history right. shows that with, with, with painful clarity uh, in terms of, of the disastrous nature of uh, unfettered uh, socialism, Marxism, yep. uh, Stalin's version of that. Uh, so, communism. The, it's not sustainable. Anybody who reads just a modicum of history knows that that leftist ideology is profoundly destructive in, in, in no different ways than Nazism was. Mm-hmm. Or, so, uh, it, of course, it's not sustainable for any country to adopt that ideology. Why the Democratic Party is doing it, um, I wrestled with that for many years. But I, I thought that it could be basically removed from the party, this, this crazy ideology, if, if we just looked at what the socialists were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is basically using the Democratic Party as a parasitic host mm-hmm. to move the party and the zeitgeist of the party and the nation to more big government solutions for everything. In fact, the government would run everything. Right. Um, but I thought, if we could just acknowledge that that's what the, their socialists are doing, they're overtaking the party, and then we're going to turn this, the party and the, the, the country into a socialist nation. Of course, if we acknowledge that that's happening, party elders will say that's crazy. The governors, particularly, let's say, the more conservative Democratic governors, will say, forget it, that's not happening. But that response, which we should have seen, didn't happen. So why? I'll tell you, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is. I think that um, a lot of people, and I think I probably put myself in this bucket, say that there's always been a, 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 a current within the Democratic Party that's always been radical left. It's mm-hmm. always been Marxist. But it has been kept at bay by the fact that most Democrats don't believe that stuff. They, they might share some embrace of government solutions, government social safety nets, right? The FDR, great, you know, the, the, the New Deal and all those kinds of things that there, there, there's crossover historically between the, the radical left and the more leftist elements of the, of the Democratic Party. And if you listen to Pelosi and Schumer, uh, what they will say uh, privately, based on some conversations I've had with friends who work on the Hill, is they believe that they can control Elon Omar's and the Rashid Tlaib's and the Ocasio-Cortez. They think they can control the, that socialist wing, keep that energy in the party, fire up the base and get them to the polls to electoral victory. Mm. So they're thinking short term. They're not thinking, well, what happens if you invite a horrifically dangerous ideology and its adherence into your big tent? Right. What the hell happens medium to long term? Can you really control that beast? No, <laughs> you can't. You can't. So that's why, uh, you know, I, I left. Uh, I, and I think most sensible people who are Democrats historically, or their families were like mine or perhaps like yours, have left as well. It's just, it's, it's no longer recognizable or uh, a party or one that you can support. It just doesn't represent our interests. And that's, it's interesting to me because I'm looking at it from the perspective of, uh, obviously it's about votes and obviously it's about power or control. We can oversimplify it and distill it down to a combination of factors. But I see their ability to essentially um, deal with the devil to a certain degree right. in this. Uh, 
I don't think they're addressing it as... Well, Bernie's a great example, right? So, I mean, obviously with the popularity of Bernie Sanders with, uh, you know, his, I think, his overt positions... even as he defines himself, as he just defined himself as a democratic socialist? Is that what he oh, defines himself a, as? Silly name game. He's a socialist, yeah. Right. He's a socialist. Uh, I mean, North I, Korea is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Correct. So let's just drop that pretense. Yeah. We? Yeah. Well, but that's the, the, the thing that I've seen, at least from, uh, from a very outsider's perspective, is that socialism is still socialism. And the way that you described it, which is this is a parasitic host. So you're using the DNC in order to legitimize uh, essentially a failed ideology in order to implement it long-term. Is that part of the handbook, do you think? Of the socialist handbook? Yeah. I know the answer to that question because the Democratic Socialists of America have that on their website. I'm not even kidding you. I know. If you go to their website, it is there. It is their treatise where back in 2014, the political leadership uh, on their political committee, they put out a basically their white paper on what ails the socialist movement and how to get power in this country. Mm -hmm. They laid out the fact that socialism is a disaster and has been disastrous everywhere it's been tried. In this country, the only way that you are successful is becoming one of the two political parties. There is no space for a third political party to actually make a change or become the dominant position, the political position. So you have to take over either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And very clearly, the one that makes the most sense, and they say this, is the Democratic Party. So we, we, the socialists, are going to take over as many Democratic positions, senators, governorships, etc., until such time as we change the, 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 the zeitgeist, the culture, mm-hmm. the, the, the values of the Democratic Party, the people, the adherents, the voters, and then we'll break away. And then we'll leave behind the Democratic Party like it's the Libertarian Party mm. or, or you know, some third party that actually has no relevancy on a national level. Right. So that's their plan. They've been very clear about it. Uh, and if you understand that that is true, and they're, they're very open with it, so why, why aren't the Democratic leaders stepping up and saying, no, you're not going to use this as a Democratic, as a parasitic host, right? Or the Jack Kennedys right. that used to stand up to this kind of stuff. They're gone. Right? Madness. No, I, and that's, that's my question, which is why? Why are they not standing up to it? Well, I think uh, they think they can control it. Right. right? So again, bring They in- think they can control it. Do you think yes. that's a sole reason? I think that that is Pelosi, Schumer, et cetera. I think that mm-hmm. their belief is that if the more people than they can get to the polls to, to punch that uh, you know, ballot get, for right. a Democratic candidate, then you will just, you can then deal with the backroom problems right. with AOC and Tlaib and the rest right. of them. You can deal with that in DC, for instance. You can control. And that is, based on all the conversations I've had with friends uh, who work on Capitol Hill, that is the calculus. That this can be controlled. Do you think that there's a future for socialism in America? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm only saying that. Do you think that they're they're going to gain inertia? Do you think their numbers will grow? Uh, well, so we that, that's a, good, it's a fear. We have some good data on right. w- what is happening in the left in this country, and what we see very clearly is that socialism is uh, increasingly accepted as a viable alternative to capitalism. That, that is especially true within the Democratic Party. Democrats increasingly uh, view de- socialism as a good thing. And part of that is because socialists have lied about what socialism is. Right. If you ask most Democrats, or frankly, anybody in this country, in fact, if I ask folks listening, what is socialism? 
most people will say, well, it's you know, a little extra money in your social security check, or it's, um, you know, it's, it's more of a social safety net, which is not true. That not is not true. socialism. Mm-hmm. Right? Or they'll say, well, it's, it's like Denmark or Sweden, you know, mm-hmm. they're socialist countries that provide a lot of good things for their people, not socialist countries. Those are both capitalist countries that have a profound social safety net paid for by big taxes, right? Right. That is not socialism. What socialism is, is the government owns the economy. The government creates an economy's means of production. They decide what gets built and how much of it gets built. And then they decide who takes whatever particular job to make all that happen. There are boards that sit down and say, Evan, you're going to be X job because we need to make these widgets over here. And we're going to set the price, right? There's no market mechanism that says, hey, this is how much we should make at this price. We're just going to decide as a government. That is socialism. That is a disaster. And should that happen in this country? I mean, if we want the nation to end, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody who watches other countries who've adopted this most recently, places like Venezuela, like Cuba, um, th- they're countries that, that exist on paper, but they have virtually collapsed. So right. would it happen here? Could it happen here? The numbers are growing. And the socialists know that. So how do you, I guess, what are the conversations that Americans need to be having now? Because I, I see it as uh, very similar to you, which is I see there's an increased acceptance to um, a wide variety of socialist, we'll call it socialist uh, agendas, where people are saying, yeah, I think that's acceptable. I think that it's okay. So where do you draw the line? Uh, you know, and I'm only asking this from the context of as a, as the GOP, as you start to look at the GOP and maybe the future of politics and even a third party, uh, how do you start to clearly differentiate and then co-opt other Democrats into, into the bigger, I would say, um, there's, there's a less willingness to accept that ideology on the, in the GOP. Like there's almost... I would say fractions of a percent that would say that they're open to socialism. I think they're open to socialism. Yeah. A much smaller fraction Democrats. Yeah. Because what do you think the percentage is on the, on the Democrat side? I mean, just from rough numbers, what do you think? Because you're, you're listening to the numbers and you're saying, okay, people are out there and they're talking about this and it's growing in acceptance. So if I'm not mistaken, some of the, 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 the latest numbers showing Democrats saying that socialism is actually a good thing. You're looking around the 60%. I mean, it is a majority of Democrats who think that. So you're raising your eyebrows for a good reason because right. you would think, you would hope that that number would be much, much less. That's not true. Because socialism, per this document that I talked about, that's on DSA's website, um, they talk about that they, they have to norm their broken ideology. Right. And so they have to sell it with people like AOC who are just cool, fun bartenders. Cool, fun. Yeah. Cool, fun. And they talk about how we just need more equality and mm-hmm. more post offices and more national parks, and you should not have to work if you don't want to. Like, all that sounds really cool. Right. I guess. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately, none of it works long-term, certainly medium-term, because as the expression said before, eventually you run out of millionaires to kill or tax in order to pay for the system. Yeah. So the arguments that I've heard, uh, which is interesting because I've, I've, I've tried to have uh, a series of conversations around people that think that these are either their, um, they're subject matter experts on how socialism is increasing in America, or they have uh, maybe some socialist views. So I'm, I'm trying to have these conversations where um, we can identify this as an ongoing conversation in the United States, but how do you justify, or how, not you, how do they justify the failures 
of these nation states yeah. with this system? How are they justifying this? And what's the argument that you've heard? So they will say, while it is true that North Korea has tried socialism, Soviet Union, Cuba, Venezuela, et cetera, et cetera, they've all tried it, uh, but they just didn't do it right. Mm. And so if you're in the United States, we do it right, we will show that actually it's much, much better than capitalism. And uh, you know, people will be far better off than they were under capitalism, um, which is, uh, of course, absurd. It's a yeah. silly argument because if you've tried it you know, 10, 15, 20 times, it's failed every time, maybe- Maybe it's actually a problem with whatever you're trying to do. It's possible that you might be able to pull up, but, but it's really suggestive that there's something fundamentally wrong with what you're trying to create. And that's true here. That's true with socialism. It just doesn't work because fundamentally it introduces market inefficiencies that you're producing stuff with people who don't want to produce it. And then you're producing it for people who don't want to buy it. You can't sustain an economy that way. So, but you know, how do you convince people that that's true and that's crazy? Most of us are busy raising kids and we have jobs and we're doing a thousand things. We really have time for this like self-actualized top of Maslow's hierarchy of need thing about mm-hmm. socialism. No, most people are like, I'm trying to pay my bills. Like I, I got a crazy spouse. I got my kids. Like I got things to do. So it means that a small, small number of people in this country are actually going to determine the fate of the nation because they are plugged in, they see what's happening, they see what's coming, and now they're going to try to rally other people to their cause who are busy doing other things. Right. Uh, and this gets back to what our good uh, teacher, Mr. Trigstad, said, right? You're a republic if you can keep it. Right. So at what point do we, as a, uh, as a country, we're busy doing a thousand other things, and I get it, mm-hmm. I'm busy too. But when do you stop and say, okay, this is too much, this is too far, I disagree, it's wrong, I'm running for city council or I'm supporting somebody on the PTA who's going to change my schools back to you know, sensible uh, lessons for the kids, not some of this 1619 Project New York Times or <clears throat> gobbledygook, right? right. Um, or run for state legislature, whatever it is, get back involved in your government. That's the, the challenge is, do you start doing that across the board too late? Right. When the socialists who are already very well organized, so right. the social justice Democrats are very, the organization that um, AOC is a part of, the Justice Democrats, very well organized. The, the, the mayor of Buffalo is a socialist, just right. elected a socialist. That happened because AOC socialist, Democratic socialist, organized this person and got a bunch of folks uh, who were gullible to vote for. And now Buffalo has a socialist mayor. Do you think that um, the woke movement is part of the socialist movement? Do you think they're tied together? Well, you know, I, I think that there are sort of those concentric circles that overlap, mm-hmm. right? So I think that there are some shared goals, right? So I think that the woke movement fundamentally is about stripping one's individuality mm-hmm. and making them part of a collective identity. So if I'm not just Brian anymore and you're not Evan anymore, but we're straight or we're gay or we're black or white or whatever that, that new identity, we're not an individual. We don't think for ourselves. We don't think critically. What happens is then... If we are now part of a new community where our identity is that we are trans, we can't have an individual thought. Right. We can't speak it loudly. Why? Because the other people will shame us, particularly those in power, positions of authority, will tell us to shut up because that's not what we believe. Well, that's what I believe. Well, shut up. It's not what we believe. So suddenly you don't have that individual expression, that thought, critical thinking, reason, all of those things. 
Um, so I think that that's the danger. You create that kind of a populace. So that when you have that, and then you introduce socialism, basically, hey, we all think socialism's great. Well, I'm not sure, says Evan and Brian. Shut up. Right. Yes, you do. It's what we're going to do. That's the danger of where wokeism leads. I I read this um, is a, is a is an incredible statistic, uh, probably a couple months ago, and they were talking about how uh, there the difference between what's accepted in academia as far as a, a legitimate ideology and socialism was accepted by eighty percent of the professors, which blew my fucking mind, and I think. Because I'm looking at kind of the shaping and the development years of people between the ages of 18 and 24. And if they're being co-opted by academia and they're legitimate, they're legitimizing this ideology, do you think this is part of the problem? So we have to go back a little bit in history, back into the 1960s in particular, right? Right. So when the, the socialist movement knew that they were not going to have pole position in the Democratic Party on the left, they were getting beat up. So they had to go somewhere. And so most of them um, retreated into academia in the 1960s and 70s. Those in particular who didn't take the more radical um, routes of like the, the ethno-Marxism of, right. uh, I was going to say Black Lives Matter, which is connected, but, um, but Black Panther movements and the September, I think the September 16th movement, um, which bombed the U.S. Capitol building in 1983. Right. So that movement, which was much more uh, violent, of course, uh, and Stalinist in that sense, the rest of them retreated into academia and became you know, basically how do we reorganize ourselves and create a new national movement? And that's where they made their beachhead. They, they hung out for a while, much like Al-Qaeda would in the caves of Afghanistan. Let's right. regroup and figure out how we, uh, we strike back and when we have a stronger movement. And that's precisely what they've done. It, the thing I was thinking about was how um, the Soviets and the KGB, uh, if we go back even post uh, just post the Bolshevik revolution in the early 1900s. And we look at when, when we look at socialism and the rise of socialism within the United States, we can actually go back, I think, all the way into the 30s before World War II. And we can yeah. really talk about the ideology then. And I also want to talk about the KGB. If you've, if you've um, done some research specifically related to how the KGB used to try to target academics, one of the... Um, conversations I've been having with people is how the KGB would go and target uh, the pillars of Western academia. They would go to uh, Cambridge and Oxford and sure. they would co-opt. Uh, and then they would essentially uh, deploy from there because they knew if they could get the Western pillars of uh, philosophical or ide- political ideology yeah. thought, yeah. they could, if they got this accepted in Cambridge and Oxford, it would be accepted in Harvard and Stanford and Princeton and Yale. Do you believe that or is that just a, a partial conspiracy? No, no, that's, that's history. I mean, uh, someone who can pick up a history book will, will see very clearly and very quickly that that's precisely what uh, the Soviet Union did. Uh, and they, there's some great Russian or Soviet spies uh, right. in the UK um, and elsewhere of in academia recruiting them. So it's not a conspiracy. It's a well-known historical fact. So they believed that they could create intellectual warriors mm-hmm. right? and begin the process of of moving from that beachhead in these uh, academic uh, uh, organizations, universities and such, and teach kids um, this, to believe in the same way. And I think that you're seeing that metastasize now. So it's not a conspiracy. It's, it's established history. Um, the, the, the thing that it continues to amaze me is that um, when we look at the, 
Soviet intelligence apparatus and we look at how it's shifted, but we look at who's actually in charge of the Soviet Union at this point, which is obviously uh, Putin. He's one of the most powerful people in the world. Uh, Do you think that there's been a a continuation of the ideology or implementation of the ideology by the KGB, then the FSB, then whatever the the fuck they are now? Do you think that they're continuing to shape uh, political ideology for the means of destruction? Or do you think that they actually believe that uh, um, they can benefit from socialism internationally? I don't think what drives most of Russian intelligence or Vladimir Putin is an ideological conviction mm. that socialism is where it's at. Okay. I think what drives a lot of that, they may utilize that as a tool, right? but I don't think that that economic system is one that they are committed to um, much in the same way that the communist China is less committed to you know, a strict Marxist society. I think what drives Putin and the SVR, you know, the, the intelligence mm. writ large in, uh, in Russia, is one, uh, well, many things, but but one, they are still very, very angry that they collapsed yeah. as a country and a world power. So they want to bring down the person, the country, the United States, that brought them down. Right. So whatever they can do to do that, they don't care. It's about revenge, right? It's very powerful emotion. I think any of us would understand that right. we were brought low, our families were destroyed, except we'd want revenge too. Mm-hmm. So that's driving a lot of this. So they're going to take advantage of whatever fissures might currently exist um, and expand them. Um, and create new ones if they can. Uh, but the bottom line is that they want to make us hurt. So it's it's not ideologically driven. It's more about evening the score and then causing as much chaos in order to capitalize on that? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a big piece. But I think that there are other grievances that if you talk to uh, someone like a Putin or a Russian mm-hmm. thought leader, uh, is right. that look at America's foreign policy in places like Libya or places like Iraq and they're like, you guys go in and you're great with your bombs and your plants, but then you walk away and the places, you know, ends up being a shithole. So you have no medium to long-term strategy or commitment to the people of those countries and you're making the world less safe and it's a, it's a hot mess. So there's that piece. They also talk about, you know, what's happening in Eastern Europe that's their backyard. In right. Words, it's, it's their Cuba and we are in their backyard, uh, you know, expanding NATO, uh, you know, trying to push Ukraine further into the, the NATO, um, uh, you know, stronghold. And, and why that is so, such so egregious to them is imagine if Cuba, um, you know, had lots of Chinese military bases in right. addition to Russian military bases, or they had lots of them on the, the border uh, with our, ourselves in Mexico. Maybe that would solve the immigration problem. <laughs> um, but it, uh, it would cause us a degree of consternation, would it not? Yeah, it would. So, Look, I think at the end of the day, Putin is doing what uh, he should do as a president, which is he acts in his own best interest. I think mm-hmm. he's a son of a bitch. Uh, I think he does terrible things to his political opponents. I don't think that Russian, uh, its form of government is a good one. Do, I mean, what, do we want Russian governments to, to, to be throughout the world, include our own? Right. Of course not. I mean, there, there is no freedom, intellectual or otherwise, in Russia. Um, there might be a veneer of it, but it's it's at the whim of Putin or the intel services or, or the police services. So we clearly don't want Russia as it currently is to win this global race for humanity. Um, but we, we also have made the Russian threat uh, far graver um, than I think it actually is. I mean, keep in mind, Russia has the economy of Italy. Right. Uh, so they have some leverage uh, in terms of natural gas, more of the Europeans than us, and then some influence on the oil markets. Uh, so they do have some additional power, you know, 
points uh, that maybe Italy doesn't have. But um, yeah, I, I just, it's unfortunate the way that we've handled our relationship with Russia. I think we should have handled it much, much differently. In what way? They, they will almost certainly always be an adversary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we have created a, a giant of a threat where it's, it's what they can actually do is not commiserate. They punch mm-hmm. up. Russia does a brilliant job of punching us in the nose as right. the weak guy. Right? I mean, they have a fantastic cyber capability. Mm-hmm. Um, so that cannot be discounted. Uh, they play a very agitating role in places like Afghanistan or in Libya. So they create some degree of instability that keeps us mired. Right. I mean, those places, look, we did this, you know, we go to Vietnam, they did it to us there. And um, after we did it to them in Afghanistan in the 80s. So it's, it's that they, they have a, the Russian mindset will always be different. Their interests will always be different. But that doesn't mean that you have to create this hysteria, mm-hmm. which we've had for the past four or five years. Uh, that they are sort of this great monster that right. is on the verge of taking over this country. That's absurd. Who's their greatest ally specifically related to intelligence? Well, the Russians will use anybody for as long as they can mm-hmm. uh, for their benefit. And that, well, that's true of any country. Um, they're very, very good at that. So I would say that some of their biggest allies, um, or the most important one is China. Mm-hmm. And that's only because China hates us uh, right. and Russia hates us. So, you know, the, Enemy that my enemy is my friend, as right. the expression goes. So they definitely leverage that relationship. So when we look at China specifically, because uh, you know I have my personal feelings. People who listen to the show, they understand my personal feelings. But when I look at kind of the list of um, international threats or strategic threats in the United States, I'd say that China <clears throat> is so much more significant than Russia. Uh, but it, you wouldn't realize it from mainstream media. Uh, I, at least, who owns maybe mainstream I'm, media? In fact. But maybe, maybe I'm incorrect. I mean, you're no. you're a former intel guy, so you tell me. Who do you deem the greater threat, Russia or China? Oh, there is absolutely no question. It's China. I mean, if anybody anybody tells you otherwise, they are bonkers. They don't understand Russia and what Russia can do. Clearly, the Russians have nukes. They have the cyber capability. All that is true. And they have the, an economy the size of Italy. They punch up. But China's different. They are a different adversary. If you look at, for instance, global trade mm-hmm. from 2000 to now, the numbers of countries that send most of their goods either to China or they buy most of their goods from China has gone from a pretty good mix between the United States and China. In other words, there's a good mix of who are our economic uh, trade partners, the majority of their trade and ours. It's switched. Once we allowed China to go into WTO in the late 1990s, China became the world's manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And with that comes a lot of leverage and a lot of power. So they've used it very, very wisely uh, to control the world's economies. Because our elites, our business owners in particular, they know that they can ship their stuff to China, pay pennies on the dollar in terms of expenses, but they otherwise would have here. So they make a lot more money. And... Along with it, they don't want to now upset that balance. They don't want to hold China's feet to the fire. They don't care that a million plus Uyghurs are dead uh, in China. And of course, it's a group of, of uh, mostly Muslim people that China has slaughtered because they are problematic people to the regime. Right? They don't, our elites don't care that our local economies or manufacturing economies are decimated. People are in or rural communities, for instance, or, or manufacturing communities are gone. They don't care about that. They care about making money. 
So this, this uh, appropriate kind of reset of the relationship between ourselves and China, I, that is one of the greatest ones that has to happen. Um, but it's the one that I don't know, frankly, will because our elites are too deeply in bed mm-hmm. uh, with and in making money, too much money uh, from, from the Chinese market. One thing that I thought was interesting um, over the last four years is you had obviously, or previous four years, uh, the Trump administration is that you had a, a open and willingness to um, talk about the, uh, what was it? How, how does, uh, how did they refer to him? The communist party, the Chinese communist party, right? Uh, you had this willingness of the administration to directly hold China accountable, at least in the public forum. Uh, but do you think the uh, China-America relations, do you think that they improved or do you think they were strained? Do you think that the administration and the previous administration did a good job at holding them to task? Do you think they were incompetent at it? Like, what's your assessment of it? So let's step back. And I, I know we've had this conversation and I'm sure folks who are listening, um, if, if you're plugged in at all, know this, uh, what I'm about to say is true. This country is at war with China. And we may not acknowledge that publicly, but we are at covert, we're in a covert Mm -hmm. war with China. And because that's true, we've got a lot of these quiet things that are happening um, behind the scenes um, that are building uh, and they're, they're getting worse and not better. So I think that there is some recognition um, in Washington that China is bad, that we need to do something about it, uh, that, that we will not just lose our superpower status, but that if China actually wins this thing, in other words, if, if we become a minority power, uh, power you know, uh, in, in the country, in the world rather, and China is preeminent, is the humanity going to be led by a bunch of communists who run over their people with tanks and throw them like the Uyghurs in, in concentration camps? That's how they deal with dissent? So I, there is this recognition mm-hmm. that China's bad. It's writ large. I should say the government is bad. Right. The, the, the communist government is bad. The Chinese people are actually quite lovely, mm-hmm. as most people are in the world, in fact. Um, but we are, are so deeply embedded, our economy is so deeply embedded with the Chinese that it's really tough to yank that, that tether away. So I think what you saw in the Trump administration was a much more verbal... Um, a willingness to bash in the Trumpian ways that the right. president could and did, uh, the Chinese bet, and they, they are the source of a lot of the world's ills. That's true. Whereas you saw under President Biden uh, now, and of course, uh, President Obama, a number of years before, basically slapping the hand of China when they would get caught, say the Chinese were you know, hacking into the OPM, the right. biggest hack mm-hmm. in, in the country's history. Yep. Or, um, you know, most recently, you know, that would, when Biden... There was another hack, and Biden was basically like, don't you do this again. And a reporter asked him, are you going to hold him to account in terms of sanctions or something? No, 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 we're not going to do that. So you have a lot of continued great talk and some covert activity regarding the Chinese. But there is no real effort by this country now, particularly under this administration, where you have the son of the president who is collecting millions of dollars from the regime, and if you believe the gentleman named Tony Bobinski and the laptop that's been found in Mr. Hunter Biden, that his father, Joe Biden, was actually taking a cut um, of these business deals. If, if that is indeed true, and I, I hope the FBI continues to look into that and, and prove that to be true ultimately, 
then you have someone in the White House who isn't interested in America's preeminence or in America's values. He's willing to sell it. His son certainly was willing to sell out. Does Apple fall, fall far from the tree on that one? I doubt it. Well, it, when we look at China and their interference, specifically in the United States, and, and we look at both Russia and China, do you think they're working in concert uh, with one another in order to cause a fractionalization using media and social media in the United States? Do you think it's an open secret that they're cooperating? Or do you think it's a non-cooperative, but basically um, they're working towards the same agenda? So you have two uh, disruptive actors that are essentially working in very separate ways. Do you think they're ever uh, running in concert, like together with specific operations? Yeah. In, back in the old days, of sort of or they're, they're engaged in liaison operations, right. the two of them sitting down talking about how what they can do together. So, you know, I have to be a little bit careful here. I'll, I'll just say that um, it would be crazy to think that the two weren't collaborating mm-hmm. on how to best break the back of the United States of America. Of course, they're talking to each other about that. And they are, to the degree to which they can trust each other on these collaborative operations, um, they'll do it. Um, and then they're, of course, going to do their own thing, unilateral operations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not a conspiracy that is certainly known. Um, so leaving that there, the question is, if, if that's true, you know, can, you, can we bust apart that relationship? You know, how can we respond? But look, I think part of the, the, the first step is just our own elites and our mm-hmm. own people leading this country saying, communist China is bad. We need to untether ourselves economically. We need to shift the, the world's factory that we participate in away from China to our friends in places like Central and South America, for instance, would make most, most sense logistically, right? right? And maybe some throughout uh, Southeast Asia, although that comes with some problems, you know, places like Thailand or Vietnam right. and Cambodia. But let's shift it to North America, the extent that we can, maybe South America, Central America in particular. Let's do that because that's much closer to home. Logistically, we can control it better. And that might even have some great secondary effects, like reducing the amount of illegal immigration, because people are fleeing places like Guatemala and El Salvador, not just because of corruption, because there are no economic opportunities there. Mm-hmm. Now, I've seen the same thing. Uh, I've traveled in uh, Central and South America, obviously, for coffee. Uh, and I think one of the, the things that I continue to talk about is, you know, this, the, our trade relationships in Central and South America are really important. Uh, you know, and one of the things that, that I specifically can talk to with Black Rifle is, you know, we buy millions of pounds of coffee from Central and South America. And I typically pay a higher price than the majority of the coffee companies out there because I want a higher quality product. Higher quality product means there's sustainable agriculture. It means that they're paying a livable wage. It means that they're building schools and having running water and and a a wide variety of other things that are really important to local economy. What I hear you saying is you're willing to sacrifice profit. Correct. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of... um, I think you got a combination of uh, really complex problems, but one of the biggest problems is that we've, and, I, and I, I see it shifting in corporate America at this point, but you know, I think in the 80s and 90s, you had, um, you'll have a board of directors and a corporation and ultimately they're answering to the shareholders and it's all about profit, right? So how can we drive growth and profit? So pennies actually matter because if your agenda is only profit, right. then you're only beholden to the profit. Yep. You're not actually uh, being held responsible for, we'll call it ethics and business, right? right? So I think you know, it, 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 
it's directly contradictory to some of the things that I believe, which is I think there needs to be less federal intervention most of the time, especially an individual liberty, not mm. necessarily on a lot of things that directly impact, we'll call it uh, environment uh, safety issues specifically. But uh, one of the things that I would love to see, and I don't know if you've had these conversations with people, is the, well, we'll call it a, a general incentive for corporations to do more business either within the United States or within, we'll call it, friendly countries. Uh, do you see that there's a participation between the intelligence community and we'll call it the business community in that way, which is when we're looking at policy, politics, international foes, do you think that there's a cooperation between those things or do you think it's fairly siloed? Yeah, I think there's a, just a profound uh, separation. You mentioned, um, you know, Frank Church back in the 70s and then all the way to today, there, there's been a huge reluctance by the intelligence community to embed itself within the, the, the commercial world. And, and that's another topic that we can have in a secure right. setting. With yeah, people yeah. Who clear to know. But <laughs> the, the point is um, that there, there, there is a general silo between those worlds. And so the way that you change the behavior of the economic actors in this country is not by introducing, you know, the Department of Justice right. in terms of the FBI or the CIA. You have to make, from a policy perspective, a compelling economic case Correct. that Evan will make just as much or close to as much money by working with folks who share our values, mm-hmm. right? Because at the end of the day, you're, you're not running a charity. Right. You are running a company. You have fantastic employees who are doing great things and you got to keep the lights on, produce a great product. You got to market. You got a lot of expenses and you have to make money. So let's make sure from a, from a policy perspective, from a leadership perspective, I put in the regulatory environment from a federal level, make sure that Evan can be successful. And I step out as much as I need to, but I, I make sure that I, I clear, I clear the, the, the playing field as much as I can from a policy perspective, tax policy, et cetera, that you can be successful and you can go to Central and South America and do your work, which for a policymaker also benefits me because as you're doing that, the hope is that you are also... And I, as, a, my, as a leader, I'm going to encourage you to, to engage in good business ethics and the rest of it. You are going to create more stability by your business operations in those places. Um, that, that's the goal. It's an imperfect goal. We've mm-hmm. seen it where that actually hasn't been true. Um, but that also means that we have an obligation to keep trying. And the last seven years in business, uh, here specifically, JT and I were, were having this conversation on the way in today. We were talking about how... Uh, we can't get some items even manufactured in the United States anymore. So a good example is double wall stainless steel. So these things right over here. Um, There is not a double wall vacuum sealed stainless steel manufacturer in the United States. There's not one. So you can't buy a product like this in the United States. You can only go to China. Um, So I think from the consumer's perspective, they're also very contradictory because the consumer wants something inexpensive and they want it high quality. Yeah. Uh, if you were to make this, you know, Yeti double wall stainless steel thermos in yeah. the United States, this thing would probably cost you $150 at the door easily. Mm. Like, so there's not even the manufacturing capability in the yeah. United States to get some of these items at this point. So even if there was an economic incentive, it'd still take us a substantial amount of time in order to build the infrastructure so we could build the items here. 
which I think is truly, um, it's, it's kind of an exercise in futility at times when you're trying to uh, talk to people specifically about this, which is made in America does mean something to a lot of people. Like yeah. I, I love to only, to only hire and bring in manufacturing that's specifically here in the United States or in our hemisphere. Like I like that, yeah. uh, at least uh, from South America perspective. Uh, the unfortunate reality is, is that we've outsourced our manufacturing to a point. And so some of these things are, are not manufactured in the United States and there's not an ec- economic incentive to bring them back. Right. The other piece is, I think that there's not only an economic uh, uh, benefit to this, which is logistics, it's, it's, uh, it's, it pays, plays less of a toll uh, specifically on the yeah. environment because we're not moving things and you know, big ships that are moving across the ocean. We're not flying things in, right? You're trucking them across the United States. I think there's an economic incentive right. that has to be, I think, pushed from the leadership or political leadership. The right. two, and this is, I think there's a national security perspective. And that's why I think they have to work together, which we've seen in the last 18 months, which is now if we've outsourced our manufacturing and there's a pandemic, sure, we find ourselves in a situation where we can't make anything here Right. Uh, now, supply and demand comes into play. And now you have inflation because yeah. now you have a bunch of people that are off work and now you don't have manufacturing. You don't even have the ability to put people back to work. And outside countries have more influence on your manufacturing course, capability. So my point in this is not to just go on some kind of weird diatribe. No, it's I'm tracking. how do you see the ability for, I think, our national security interests and then our economic interests in order to work together? Is this a State Department function? The bigger picture is you were laying out both the national security argument and the economic argument to do the right thing. Right. To to reinstitute American manufacturing and or have some degree of our manufacturing ability in Central and South America, our allies. It's not that we can't do it. Very, very smart people, smarter than us, which I know might be impossible. It might be impossible. Might be impossible. A couple Idaho boys here figuring (laughs) it all out. The point is all the solutions exist. That's not the issue. It's political will. Right. So when you have, as we do in this country, multiple uh, administrations who have people that have businesses in China or equity stakes uh, in in Chinese Mm -hmm. conglomerates of different kinds, or their families do, that's where we fall short because we know the solutions. We just, and we have the politicians who say the right thing. But the follow through by members of Congress, some of whom, by the way, spoiler alert, are actually recruited by the Chinese. Well, oh, that's what? a different conversation. Oh, no anyway, way. Yeah, isn't that so <laughs> they could be influenced in some way? Look, uh, and our media, et cetera. The point is, you have to have political will for people who don't just have the policy solutions and don't just say what we ought to do but then move that legislation forward, sign it, and implement it, Mm -hmm. execute it, fund it. We know how to fix this. And that's actually one of the problems I think that that I see repeatedly in this country on lots of different issues. We are still an exceptional nation. We're going through a really crappy time right now, across the board, lots of different issues. There is nothing, nothing, not one single problem in this country that can't be solved today. It's the question of political will. Right. People willing to stand up and get it done because we have the solutions. That's actually a pretty awesome position to be in. We're not like, you know, Zimbabwe that's otherwise collapsed and we don't have the resources or the mm-hmm. ability to put the policy solutions together. No, they're in a much worse shape because they can't really fix a lot of their problems. Certainly not anytime soon. We can. 
and we choose not to. And by we, it's the folks in Washington, D.C., in Congress, Senate, in the House, and in the White House. And that's been true multiple generations of, of politicians going back for 20, 30 years, certainly from the Clinton era when he pushed through China and the WTO, and it didn't change under Bush or under Obama. And I think Trump used a lot of the good rhetoric, and I think he was pushing hard. But there were people in his administration that were in the back pocket of, mm-hmm. of the Chinese, too. Let's be honest about that. And Joe Biden, dear God, so many of his folks are in the back pocket, to include his son and maybe even himself. So you have to have good political leadership who's willing to step up and do the right damn thing. And that's the problem in this country. You don't. That's why I'm supporting you. Evan Haver for president. <laughs> uh, is that where this is going? It's yeah, a setup. No, no, no. no? It's, it's definitely not. not definitely not. I don't even have a Twitter account. Cap- I can't. I don't know if I can survive that. I, I think that. Just make sure you launch your, your uh, campaign on the New York Times. Yeah, yeah you I'll, start I'll, I'll do the story in the New York Times. That's how I'm going to launch it because. Too uh, soon? Ev- 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 too soon? No, no, I mean, I've, I, I, I enjoy <laughs> being called a woke cuck uh, a thousand times a day across uh, Twitter because of that story. I think, uh, you know, one, one of the things I was thinking about uh, during the Trump administration was the rhetoric that was used against the Chinese. And there's a there's complex debate as far as like the trade agreements and, you know, holding accountability and, you know, the villainization of the agenda called America First, right? right? Because... I've heard it from versions of the left, which is, you know, this is xenophobic, it's racist. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, you guys, you're right, okay. Do you think that that's directly um, coming from the Chinese as far as the information operation? Or do you think that that's something that they've co-opted a series of people to kind of be lockstep within an ideology and that automatically happens? Okay, so a couple of things. Let's first start with this this horseshit talking point from the left that that either the America First or the, the, the Trump administration, the Republican Party today is somehow xenophobic systemically mm-hmm. and it's just full of a bunch of, you know, uh, racist, et cetera. That's horseshit. And we know that's horseshit. The data tells us it's horseshit. In 2020, during that election, under, the, uh, under Trump's campaign, the GOP put together on the federal level a more diverse coalition of voters than any GOP nominee since 1960. More black people more Hispanic people, more Asian people, more gay folks, LGBTQ, et cetera, plus sign, yep. pi, whatever. Mm-hmm. More of, of that, those folks voted for the Republican Party in 2020 than, it, than 1960. So something is going on in this country, and it's a good, good thing. They are saying enough, enough of the, of the shit that we have seen for 20 or 30 years. We're willing to vote for a guy, Donald Trump, who is unpredictable, says crazy things in tweets, but he represents what we need, which is a human firecracker that explodes in Washington, D.C., and everybody doesn't know how to handle it. Because we are getting to a point of desperation where we don't know what else to do other than to elect a a reality TV star who's going to blow up everything. Right. So Trump, to me, was a, 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 a... Look, you can debate, you know, whether you like him or dislike him, but the point is he has served as his forcing function for this country to wake the fuck up. That we have a broken Washington, D.C., a broken elite that is not focused on this country, the exceptionalism of this country, putting this country first. And so he resonated, and that call to America first resonated because people want to believe in American greatness. You know, we used to be, we used to celebrate the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Right now we have people who are, you know, not celebrating this country and we're sending them as Olympic athletes, right? 
we, we hear how many times from the, the, the Talibs and the Omars, we hear from people like the, Andrew Cuomo from New York, America's never been that great. I mean, we hear over and over and yeah. over people from the left, the Democratic Party saying America is bad. And then they break it down from there. America's always been bad. The founding fathers and mothers were bad. Uh, of course, we never did anything good from founding until now. Uh, you know, then it's white people actually are the ones who are the bad. And then we start right. breaking down, well, it's white men. And then it's, so it's the, the slicing and dicing of this country up into little individual parts. And they are attacking the one thing that makes us exceptional in my book. And that is this. Out of many, one. E pluribus unum is our national motto that makes us exceptional. That says we are a melting pot. Out of all the people from all around the world who come together, Bring your diversity of, of wherever you're from and the food and the language. Bring all of that. But at the end of the day, you are an American and you celebrate that Americanness. You rally around the flag. You understand what makes America exceptional. That includes the Constitution, law and order. There are fleeing places that are collapsing. We are an amazing place. And we will continue to be an amazing place so long as we find things that bring us together. That, and that thing is nationalism. It's that America's great. That is at the heart of the America First movement is a belief that America is good, that America is exceptional. So that's why I embrace America first. I understand some of the history around those words. Right. I mean, I'm not a fool. But I think that we can recreate and reimagine what America first means. And I think that data from 2020 election, the most diverse GOP electorate since 1960, that's telling me that what I'm saying right now is right. People want this country to succeed because we know that it's a great place. It is an imperfect union. It's in the Constitution. We're all aware. Right. It's our job to make it more perfect. And that's what makes this place so amazing. Woo, man. That, that, my friend, is like one of the things that I can't really top. I can't go on a rant like that because it's incredibly articulate. It's amazing. Uh, Well-spoken. I think... Uh, I think I got to ask you one more question before we, before we hand this off, which is uh, you're in Goffield not too long ago, right? There we go. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, we, Let's tell we, the story. We, we, we got we to we tell this Guffield story because it was edited out. So I want to hear yeah. the, the Guffield joke. Tee it up because yeah. it's fucking hilarious. So uh, I'm not used to being on TV. I'm not a TV guy. I mean, I know I have a beautiful face and all. <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm an actor. Handsome devil. Uh, so it's, it's a strange thing to go from being a case officer and, and being away from cameras and now suddenly you are in front of one. And so I, I get, have gotten invited amazingly uh, to, to different shows. And I talk about politics and how security and all the rest of it, right? So uh, Greg Gutfeld, who is a really funny guy, super, super nice funny. guy, yeah. by the way, um, he, he, he and his staff were gracious enough to invite me to come on a show. So for folks who aren't aware, his show uh, on Fox uh, is this late night comedy show, fantastic ratings, beating the socks off of all of his competitions, the Jimmy Kimmel's, the rest of it. Mm. Because it's funny. It's a funny show. They it's talk funny. about news stuff, uh, but they put a funny spin on it. So, you know, a couple hours before the show, I'm in New York and they send the topics, right? One of the, t one of the topics is a study uh, that shows, uh, that we asked people, uh, men and women, hey, in the workplace, would you entertain an office romance? I mean, obviously you as CEO, you do. Yeah. I met uh, like 16-year girlfriends. Correct. Yeah. But your wife. My wife was. Edit this. that out. Yeah, edit uh, that out. So the, the, the ladies in this study said there was like 0% of ladies who were interested in office romance. Uh, but dudes, 
it was like some ungodly number. Like all the dudes were like, yeah, I'm in. And the ladies were like, no, no. Yeah. So that's the, 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 what I was sent. I'm like, all right, what can I say that's smart, but also a little bit funny? Hmm. So here's, here's uh, I'm sitting there and I come up with my talking points and we're at the show. We're filming live studio audience. Greg Gutfeld doesn't know what's about to come. Uh, it's going to be good. <laughs> so he goes around to all the other guests. I'm the last one. And he says, so Brian, what do you think? I'm like, look, I hear everybody saying something interesting, but really, well, you guys are missing the point here. Think about it. We've got a bunch of ladies who are saying no thanks, but millions of men who are ready to go. So what that means, folks, is America's workplace is about to get very gay. <laughs> so thank you. It's worth a laugh. It is worth a laugh. Thank it's you. I hilarious. see some folks laughing. Yeah. Thank you. Look, am I a comedian? Yes. <laughs> yes. Am I a hero? Yes. Yeah, also. Yes. Yeah. Both. So twofold. I, uh, I I tell that joke, and uh, it's crickets. It's uh, no one's laughing. Uh, I can see across the line. Um, which, of course, every smart former CIA officer realizes once you read the room, you know, it's disastrous. Yeah. You just keep going. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. you yeah, joke bombs, you just yeah. say it again, mm-hmm. louder. Yeah, louder. You made a different accent. Yeah. So, uh, so I continue on by saying, uh, don't think about it. Look, uh, gay guys and bi guys, look, good things are happening for you. Food, shooting fish in a barrel, <laughs> right? Bunch of dudes ready to go. <laughs> But for the straight fellows, I'm going to be honest with you, it's about to get really weird in this country. It's going to get really weird. But the good thing is you, you have a bunch of other dudes. You can try out your, your pickup lines, right? So, you know, you go up to Randy in accounting and you're like, uh, hey, Randy, I couldn't, uh, couldn't help but notice as you were processing my recent trip to Toledo, your beautiful skin <laughs> and uh, your hair is gorgeous and you smell like a daisy. You want to have coffee? Black rifle. Of Black rifle coffee. Uh, so I tell that joke, and uh, still, still quiet. Yeah, yeah. Still nobody laughed on that one. Uh, so again, I'm like, well, that just means challenge accepted for round three. I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> you win again? Yeah. Oh, I, are you kidding me? Like my joke is like, I'm still dead. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no. Yeah. So I, I basically, uh, I, I went again. I don't even remember what I said. And basically, Kat Simpson was this lovely, lovely, smart uh, gal. She looks at me and she's like, if any man ever said any of those things to me, I would call the police. <laughs> <laughs> to which I looked at her and I said, well, I'm going to take you off the to-do list. <laughs> Again, another terrible joke that crossed no. the line. So, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, I asked the producer after the fact. I'm like, so how'd it go? She's like, great. I'm just great. I'm like, how about that last part? You know, right. I like, didn't want to cross the line. She's like, eh, might have been a little, a little aggressive. A little aggressive. <laughs> but we're going to have the editors take a look, you know, and see what they think. Uh, and, um, so I, I watched the show later and, um, that whole segment was gone. I yeah. was edited out. So, uh, my, my, uh, comedic <laughs> career, uh, had a glorious start. The first yeah. 40 minutes I was hitting it out of the park. Smashing it. Oh, smashing yeah. it. No, yeah. I was hosting the Tonight yeah. Show. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> And then, uh, and then it collapsed. Yeah. And uh, now I'm working Indian casinos yeah, good. with my act. That's so really I good. fell pretty far. I mean, there's a lot of people that like to frequent Indian. Uh, that... I work for slot machine coins. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. a, I mean, that's, there's a lot of money in slot machines. I eat Indian buffets. Mm. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> Funny enough. So Coeur d'Alene bingo, Coeur d'Alene uh, bingo oh, we're casino, going full circle right? Back we're going to go back to Idaho. Man, so this guy, back he should be a host. So it's good. 
I actually saw Waylon Jennings. Oh, legend. Legend in the Coeur d'Alene Casino. Amazing. Uh, probably a year before he died or two or whenever it was. Beautiful place. Go visit. Beautiful place. Yeah. And uh, it was myself, Luke Benoit. Do you remember that guy? I don't. No. And I was uh, a part of the cool crowd. Kinzer. Something uh, my sister. No, they were, See, they were a year below circle. me. Here we yeah. go. Now, I, I, I did say this about uh, about you earlier, which was the first thing that I asked Brian was like, how's your sister? Yeah, you I did. literally was like, how's literally, your sister? Literally, I've not seen you in 20 years, bro. And within 30 seconds, you asked about my sister. How's your Nothing sister? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in over 20 years. Nothing has no, changed. I had friends You're- over at my house, and I didn't actually have friends in high school, but they would come to my house, and I'm not kidding you, my sister would complain that she would be missing underwear when friends would come over. Mm-hmm. He only so let me into his I, house, I think, one time. Like, uh, and you only let, you let me, you, you let me stay at the front door. Uh, whatever. I, I wouldn't, you wouldn't even let me I'm in. Like, You're like, hey, I'm, dude. I'm a loser. Don't, you can't come in here. Yeah. One, uh, my house is nice and you don't look like you should be on the furniture. Yeah. Uh, but you should be a Green Beret. Yeah. And we're going <laughs> to see you someday. <laughs> yeah. Undercover. I've come a long way. You, you know, I'm, I'm come a long way. <laughs> I, I've, I went from uh, not being let into your house to, you know, I mean, putting you You're on You're an international superstar. Shit, shit. <laughs> Podcaster. Yeah. Extraordinaire. Holy Only fans. Shit. You know, Only guy fans. makes 10, 20 grand a month with that. Oh, man, man, I wish. You know what you do with a coffee can, I'll tell you what. Dude. Brian, thanks a lot, man. I Pleasure. really appreciate it. That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!